0: Our text today will be from Daniel chapter 2. You will notice that we're only going to read portions of it. We've already read a little bit of it in the reading earlier in the service, the scripture reading earlier in the service. And um, we will read then verses 31 to the end of the chapter, verses 49, but there's quite a bit that we haven't read, and I hope my summary of that as I preach uh, will adequately fill in. But I guess I was a little bit concerned with 49 verses that you might start leaving before I finished. Not really, but <clears throat> um, before we look at the text, I, I found it, I actually last week, as I knew I was preaching and I actually knew what I was preaching on, Uh, I found it particularly interesting listening to Rob's sermon on Habakkuk and reflecting on Habakkuk's questions of God. Why are you letting Israel, Judah, uh, go when they're being so rebellious and sinful? And God said, don't worry about it. I'm going to punish them with the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, whoa, I mean... Can we be real here? The Babylonians are so much worse than Israel. I know Israel's sinful. They're stiff-necked and they're rebellious. But the Babylonians don't even come close to pleasing you. Why are you using them? Well, we were left with that, 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 that sort of uh, the tension of God's providence <clears throat> in that sermon. But what's interesting, as I was thinking about it, was that as we come today to Daniel, the the punishment that uh, Habakkuk uh, prophesied of concerning um, maybe four or five decades earlier had come to pass. Daniel and his friends, along with a number of other uh People from Judah live in Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar has captured Jerusalem, has taken away its people, and the punishment that God promised upon his people is in process. And that's where we find ourselves. <clears throat> and so we're going to look at one of the early events, or what appear, apparently is one of the early events in Daniel's uh, life as a leader. Uh, as a part of the Babylonian uh, administration, you might say, um, so I'm going to read now uh, the uh, Daniel's uh, explaining of the mystery of the dream and what it means, uh, which is the theme throughout the whole of the chapter. <clears throat> But we're sort of moving toward the end. I'm going to start reading in, in uh, verse 31 of chapter 2. And uh, you can pick it up in your Bibles or you can look in your bulletin where it is also presented. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. You saw, O king, and behold a great image, the image mighty and exceeding, and of exceeding brightness stood before you and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. So not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You O king, the king of kings, to whom God the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and then to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you to rule over them. You Are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which which shall rise, which shall rule over all the earth. And there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, it shall break and crush all things, all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those things, the Lord God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdom's and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made request of the king, and appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to your word, uh, to this moment in one sense in history, and yet this picture that is given to us of history, both past, present, and future, we ask that you would open our eyes to who you are, to your greatness, to your sovereign rule, to your wise, uh, omniscient, understanding of all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 2 that is before us, and I'm going to just say it again, I'm now going back to the beginning of the chapter, which we didn't read, but I hope it is obvious. Uh, In this chapter too, that is before us, Daniel's, Daniel and his three friends are placed in a very difficult position and they face another trying situation. There is a, a saying that is attributed as a Chinese uh, curse. It says, may you live In interesting times. Now you might be sitting there. May you live in interesting times? Why is that a curse? Well the premise. Of that curse is this. That uninteresting times. Are times of peace and tranquility. Whereas interesting times. Are characterized as times of. Danger. And uncertainty. It was Daniel's calling for better or worse, to live in interesting times. And that's certainly the impression you get as you read through the whole book of Daniel and see some of the challenging situations he faced. I I suppose it would be fair, or if we were to be fair, we would need to be careful not to overstate the case, because there's much of Daniel's life in uh in Babylon, which we know nothing about, we learn from Chapter One of Daniel that Daniel spent seventy years as in leadership in the land of Babylon, from Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to Cyrus the Great, and maybe many much of that time uh would have been simply dealing with the difficult routines of life, living in a faraway land, being a resident alien, trying to balance the demand of two masters, the Babylonians and Yahweh. But in this book of Daniel, we don't have a record of the uninteresting times, the ordinary times. The times of Daniel that scripture records for us are the interesting moments. The moments when Daniel's two loyalties clash sharply with each other, or when his life is is threatened in some way. It is not as if God was not with Daniel in the ordinary times. However, at the times of stress and trial, it became evident for all to see that the Lord was working in and through the life of Daniel. <clears throat> if you think about it, that may well be true of our lives as well. Uh, what is your hope in life as a, a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you want your friends and neighbors to see and to understand the difference? that Christ makes in your life? I would suggest to you, if that is your desire, if that is, in a sense, the prayer of your life, it is essentially a prayer to live in uninteresting times. For it is most often in our trials, in our difficulties, that the difference which our faith makes becomes most obvious. Such times of trial provide the opportunity for our faith to make a visible difference to others around us. Speaking of the trials a believer faces, the apostle Peter writes in his letter, these have come, that is trials, these have come So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is in the interesting times of life that the world sees the genuineness of our faith. Our trust in God is put on open display. It is then that our faith and our peace may shine forth and, and clearly be a beacon of hope to those around us. <clears throat> Daniel, and this, the events that we find in Daniel tra- chapter 2, is, is certainly one of those interesting times. And the problem begins uh, with a king that's suffering from insomnia. King Nebuchadnezzar has been having a recurring dream that troubles him and has been affecting his ability to get sleep. He calls in his wise men, And he wants them to explain what his dream means. I don't know about you. Maybe you've had some dreams like that. I know one of the dreams that periodically hits me on Saturday nights, and particularly when I was weekly in the pulpit. And it was the dream that I would forget to set my alarm. And that would just, believe it or not, that would actually eat at me. It would you know, cause me great tension. I, I learned to wake myself up and, and had to check the alarm. <clears throat> not all dreams we can quite remember. My wife, on the other hand, she'll wake up some night and say, I didn't sleep very well. I had a terrible dream. And uh, then she said, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but, but I know. And then she'd start talking about something I was doing in her dream that did not make her very happy. <laughs> and she'd ask me why I was doing it even though it only happened in her dream. Um, So here, Nebuchadnezzar, obviously in a more serious way, calls in his chief advisors to tell him what his dream meant, this dream that was disturbing his life. And in verse 2, these advisors are enumerated as the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, as you read on in the text, in verses like verses 12, 13, and 14, as a group, they're called the wise men. I think actually they have some connection uh, to the wise men in the Christmas story. It was a tradition in that area of the world. <clears throat> and uh, so they're called before the king, and they're all about this idea of interpreting the dream. That's what they do. And so they say to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4, Tell us your dream, O great king, and we'll tell you what it means. Now here's where things begin going south. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't born yesterday. He figures if these guys are so wise, not only should they be able to interpret his dream, they should be able to tell him what his dream was. It was sort of making sure they knew their stuff. Of course, that was impossible. The wise men protest. protest, It isn't fair. You don't expect us to know what you dreamed, do you? The king, being the king, cares nothing about fairness. They tell him the dream and the interpretation or they die. The wise men were, of course, horrified at this unreasonable demand. They were not able to do what the king ordered. And the king was not impressed. In fact, we find that he was furious and tells the palace guard to to collect up the wise men and to kill them. But here's the kicker. The, palace, the head of the palace guard was not just to grab the, the guys that had been called into the king and who had been given the charge to uh, pre- present the dream and interpret it. But all the wise men of Babylon were to be rounded up. We see in verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And so we find Ariok, who is the the commander of the king's guard. He has no choice but to carry out the king's command, to execute the wise men. And so his mission brings him to collecting up Daniel and his three friends, because they fall under this category in Babylon of wise men. And so they too are to be scheduled for death. I don't think we'd be surprised if Daniel uh, was shocked to hear this. We don't know, though. We aren't told. But what we are told is that Daniel responded calmly and with great confidence. We are told in verse 14 that he, he navigates life with prudence and discretion. Even now when confronted with the threat of gargantuan proportions, Daniel in interesting times demonstrates godly wisdom. Daniel asked the the head of the guards, he says, what's the deal? What's going on? Uh, Why such a draconian measure? And he gets the story. He's told what's going on between the king and the other wise men and the king's demand. And the problem that the wise men had, they were all impotent. They weren't able to perform as the king demanded. Well, Daniel, on hearing this, immediately uh, goes to the king and he pleads for time so that he can interpret the dream. Uh, The king, in some way, must have been still uh, pleased with Daniel. He allows Daniel such time, and then we find Daniel returning to his home to the three friends and explaining to them, the dire situation in which they find themselves. And they go to prayer, seeking God's mercy concerning this mystery, so that they would not be executed. What we learn is that the sages of Babylon. We're only half right. While no human being could ever tell the king the contents and interpretation of his dream, God can. And this God is the God of Daniel. And he lives among his people. In the middle of the night, after Daniel and his friends have gone to the Lord in prayer, God speaks to Daniel and describes the dream <clears throat> and gives its interpretation. So how does Daniel respond? He hops on his, his, his motor scooter and he rushes over to Nebuchadnezzar. No, he and his friends come together once again. And he spends time... Uh, praising God and thanking him. We found that in the passage that we read in, in our earlier reading this morning <clears throat> from Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 20. And I want to read it to you again. I want you to listen to it. This is a passage that quite honestly could take quite a bit of reflection and thinking. It's, it's rich. <clears throat> but there are a couple of things I want us to draw from it. But So here. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. <clears throat> As I mentioned, there are a number of things <clears throat> that we could think about in terms of uh, of this uh, ode of praise to Yahweh. But there is just two I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first, Daniel emphasizes the reality of the fact that God is powerful, all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is the final authority over all. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, its king, seemed to have all the power in the world. Uh, Anyone who was just being asked on the street would say, well, the greatest nation in the world is Babylon, at least in the world they knew. And the greatest king is Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar presumed to have control over Israel and Daniel. But Daniel recognizes the truth of the matter. Notice verse 21. He, as, he, <clears throat> as he talks in in this ode of praise. Nebuchadnezzar is king only because God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. Again, Back to Rob's sermon last week, <clears throat> he, he was speaking to us of the significance of God's providence and what is often the mystery of God's providence. <clears throat> God rules in the ordinary affairs of this world to accomplish his purposes, he is above all things able. And we don't always understand how he does so. <clears throat> Habakkuk was troubled with the idea that the evil, very evil, hordes of the Babylonians would be used in punishment of God's people. How can God allow that? He didn't understand. Think about that, and I, I ask myself the question. I ask you the question. Are you ever frustrated? by the rulers and government that God established? What is he thinking? Whether you or I can fathom it or not, God is in control. Accomplishing his purposes in this world, in our country, in the state of Connecticut, in our communities, in our families and church, and all our relationships. Our God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. But that is not all God is. The second thing we see clearly in Daniel's prayer is that God is all-wise. Daniel well understands that his wisdom is derived from God's wisdom. God's revealing this mystery to Daniel has made that, the mystery, the dreams, perfectly clear to him. Now earlier we we heard Daniel described uh, as a person of prudence and discretion. And I I would say that this prudence and discretion that Daniel displayed earlier when Ariak came to him with the terrifying news that he might Uh, this terrifying news that it might be put to death, uh, I think we might oftentimes confuse that with just common sense. I mean, some people lose their uh, control of their, their words and their emotions at times of crisis, and other people seem to hold, hold control of them and uh, uh, don't overreact and come up with sort of wise and calming uh, actions and words. <coughs> And, uh, you know, something any uh, sensitive, reasonably intelligent human being could come up with. But the, the ability to describe someone else's dream can only come from a divine source. He is the one, that is God, he is the one who reveals deep and hidden things. God is all-wise. He is all-knowing. <clears throat> you know, as I'm thinking about that, and you know, you know I'm as I was reflecting on that. I'm sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. God is all-wise and all-knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, I, and then I realized it, it is kind of easy for us to give quick lip service to the promise that God is all-wise. No, excuse me, to the premise that God is all-wise. But like his providence, God's omniscience challenges us. This is first seen, I think, in the Garden of Eden. As Satan um, entices Eve, and he entices her with this, uh, this lie. If you eat of that fruit, you can know. Just like God knows, you can know good and evil. And of course, I don't know what her full thinking process was. Yeah, well, yeah, I can know that. Why does God only know? Don't I know? And so began one of the great struggles of faith. You know what that is? That those times in life when we face difficult moments... And it seems that God's revealed will would lead us in one direction. But that's crazy. Why would you do that? And we substitute our own will, our own knowledge. We opt for our wisdom (coughs) over God's. Daniel was honored in Babylon as one of the wise men. <clears throat> but Daniel recognizes that whatever wisdom he truly has is from his all wise God. God alone is all powerful, and he alone is all wise. Daniel, armed. With the answer to his prayer, sits out with Ariok, the king of the guards, to the royal court, court, ready to speak to the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. He is brought into the king, and the king gets right to the point. We find this in verse 26, and I may be imagining a little bit here, but I'm imagining the king looking. Oh yeah, Daniel? You're coming. Okay. Okay, Daniel, are you able... To make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Now, I don't know if King Nebuchadnezzar was being that wise guyish. That's probably what I would do. Daniel responds in a way that puts the focus where it belongs, not on himself, but directly on his God. Daniel bears witness to the God who speaks and reveals dreams and interpretation <clears throat> he is the God we find in verse 28 the God in heaven who reveals mysteries Daniel proceeds and first he gives the vision and then its meaning <clears throat> excuse me the division the dream is of a of an immense statute besides its size its shape and composition is striking it's human in shape it has a head of gold it has shoulders and arms and chest of silver its belly and thighs are bronze while its legs are of iron and the feet are this strange composite of clay and iron As striking as this statue is, there is another object in the vision. And Daniel goes on to describe a rock whose origin is mysteriously defined in negative terms. In verse 34 it says, it is not made with human hands. I think the implication is... That in this dream, that immense image that is seen is a creation of human hands. The rock is not. It is not made with human hands. With these two pieces, we now have a plot. The rock smashes into the (coughs) statue and destroys it. It crashes it in such small pieces that wind blows it away. It's like chaff. After all this, the rock continues to grow into a huge mountain, filling the whole earth. Interesting, isn't it? What does it mean? So in verse 36, Daniel moves into the interpretation. He says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, you are the head of gold. At one level, this was good news for Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom and him and he were at the top. They were... They were the head. They were represented by gold, the most precious of materials. And while the, the head of gold <coughs> will eventually be replaced, in other words, one day his kingdom will cease to exist, he will be, his kingdom will, will be surpassed only after he has died. And so he doesn't necessarily go through the humiliation. But it's not an eternal kingdom. Then after Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel interprets the remaining parts of the image, talking of these symbolic nations rather than of individual kings. He spells out (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar, but no other names are given. And I want to pause here for a moment <clears throat> before we go on with this interpretation as we look at these ensuing kingdoms here referenced i think the temptation is to focus the focus on the identity of the last three kingdoms who were they exactly are they the kingdom are the kingdoms that come after babylon the medo persian empire The Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Or, are these three kingdoms that come after uh, Babylon, are they the Empire of the Medes, the Empire of the Persians, and the Empire of the Greeks? Not going down to the Romans. And then what about the ten toes of mixed clay and iron? It doesn't take long before we find our heads spinning with a variety of interpretations offered. All of which, by the way, go far beyond the interpretation that Daniel himself gives us here, or any other place in scripture as as far as I know. The passage gives us virtually no data about these other kingdoms Other than the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Why is that? I believe it is because Daniel intends to give us a philosophy of history rather than a precise analysis of history ahead of time. The focus of the dream itself and its interpretation are more concerned with what the future holds than when it will come to pass. And so I th- I want us to focus on the interpretation the passage gives us rather than pursue the broader, more speculative connections. So what, according to Daniel 2, does this dream seek to teach us? I think first it shows us that God gives every kingdom its glory and power. They do not arise because of their own strength. Notice what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. Not only that, even if... Nebuchadnezzar is history's head of gold. He will be brought down to dust. To use the language of Daniel's prayer, God removes kings and sets up kings. If you want to make it more contemporary, he he removes dictators and tears down dictators. He removes presidents and sets up presidents. Pick your form of government. Ultimately, The one who rules is the king of kings, Daniel's God. The transient nature of all worldly authority is one of the central themes of this dream. It reminds us that every earthly kingdom has another kingdom that will replace it. There are no exceptions. No earthly kingdom is forever. You know, something I was thinking about that, I was was looking, I was going to say this strongly, and I said, you know something? If you read much history, you see this again and again and again repeated. What Daniel says here, the, the implications of it, are true, and we have seen it played out in history. Which always makes us who live in a particular place in a particular time to have a certain level of humility about who we are in national terms. All worldly authority is transient. No earthly kingdom is forever. The gold gives way to the silver, the silver gives way to the bronze, and the Finally, to the iron and the toes of clay and iron. The final kingdom in the sequence is not only inferior in glory to the first, iron compared to gold, but inferior in unity as well. It is iron mixed with clay, that which cannot hold together. In the final analysis, the kingdoms of this world, however glorious or powerful they may seem, have, as we say, feet of clay. The depiction of these challenging and failing earthly kingdoms stands in stark contrast to what replaces them. The kingdom of God enters the chaos and hopelessness of human history and brings fresh and lasting hope to humanity. You can go back to the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that great tower that was to honor the greatness of man, destroyed. And with the the failure of the Tower of Babel comes the new hope of God's call to Abraham in chapter 12. Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes to a similar conclusion. The final word of history does not lie in the new and improved version of the image of man. Rather, it lies with something radical that God will do. A rock not hewn by human hands will strike and destroy the statue, then grow to fill the earth. The rock clearly points To the kingdom of God that will fully be established in the last days. A kingdom that starts small, lacking in glory. But one day it will fill the whole earth and it will be the ultimate fact of history. Only that divine kingdom is eternal. So that poses a question for us, doesn't it? For each one of us, the challenge for us is where will we place our hope? Where will we invest our lives? Is it in that which is transient and passing? Or that which is passing? Excuse me, that which is lasting and eternal. Ultimately, the rock that crushes and destroys the kingdom of this world is Jesus. Readers of the New Testament cannot help but think of Jesus Christ as the rock who establishes God's kingdom by crushing the godless nations. This is the understanding of Jesus as the rock is seen in several places, in the Old Testament, maybe the most familiar is in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this passage is quoted a number of times in the New Testament, Matthew 21, 42, Luke 20, 17, Peter, 1 Peter 2, 7, as well as some others. The passage, I think, that is most interesting for us to consider this morning is the one in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 takes place just after the triumphal entry. So you've got the period of time that Jesus is talking and he gives a parable. It's the parable of the tenants. The story is the story of a vineyard. Just a note, oftentimes in the New Testament, the, the, the picture of a vineyard is used to describe or to indicate the kingdom of God. And this parable is the story of a vineyard, which is rented to some tenants, and those tenants refuse to pay the rent. The owner sends messengers on several occasions to collect the rent, but they are beaten and chased off. Finally, the owner sends his own son, but the tenants Do the unspeakable. They kill the son. At this point, the owner himself returns. He comes and he destroys the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. Jesus, in a clear attempt to identify himself with the son in the parable, and his listeners, which were the Jewish leaders and those that dismissed him, with the doomed tenants, quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But immediately he, he, has, he goes on to associate the stone with the stone of Daniel 2. And he, and he says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. This is a clear allusion to the stone that crushes the statue. Jesus, by alluding to this stone, was identifying himself as Israel's Messiah, the stone which crushes the kingdoms of this world. But here's the thing. Jesus' kingdom, though, is not like the kingdoms of this world. He brings about his kingdom through being rejected by his people, the Jews, and his sacrificial death on the cross. The kingdoms of the world advance by power and conquest and glory in their strength. The kingdom of God establishes itself through suffering and death. To be sure, this kingdom starts out small as Jesus pointed out in the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is like the kingdom of God. It is the smallest of seeds, but grows into the greatest of trees. So it is with the kingdom Jesus establishes. It may start out small. It may seem like nothing. It may seem easy to crush, but it grows into an unstoppable force. The outward glory of this world may seem impressive in the present, but the future belongs to the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel reminds us that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to Jesus, who place their trust in any other source for salvation, will ultimately be rejected by him. Those who reject the cornerstone will be crushed by it. Or in the imagery of Daniel 2, the kingdoms of this world and all those who have placed their trust in them will be shattered by the stone God appointed and they will be blown away like chaff. It is a hopeful message, but also a challenging message. The message of the kingdom is, To those who bow before Christ, rest in him alone for salvation. They receive the gift of being members of his kingdom, a kingdom that will not end. But to those who say, yeah, it's okay, but not that important, who reject Christ, fall under his judgment It's both. It's grace to the undeserving who bow before him and judgment to those who are unwilling to bow their knee. There comes a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. It is also a day of terror for many. The question is, Not do we get kind of lip service, but is the God who we rest in the God of sovereign might and wisdom, of grace and mercy, or are we ultimately going it on our own? Let us pray.